All right, if you have your Bible, um, turn to the minor prophet Joel. If you need your table of contents, we won't laugh at you. I know Joel is not one that we typically turn to on a regular basis. Joel. This morning we're starting in earnest our um, study through these minor prophets. Last Sunday, I know some of you weren't, weren't here. I think Mother's Day is probably the lowest Sunday in college, Sunday school. I mean, it was all of us adults and the people genuinely from Auburn. Uh, <laughs> but um, we kind of had like an overview um, of, of the prophets in general, which is a huge, huge theme and office in the Old Testament. And then specifically within that broader category, the writing prophets, writing prophets, um, that are categorized between major and minor. Um, major and minor distinguished only by the length of the books that they wrote. So major prophets being like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And minor prophets being these 12 smaller prophetic books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And um, that's the canonical order in which they appear in your Bible. From ancient times, those are uh, minor prophets were referred to as the Twelve. The Twelve, and often they were bound together in one volume called the Book of the Twelve. And and that's what we aim to study this summer. We aim to move our way Sunday by Sunday through each of these twelve prophets, minor prophets. And uh, today we're going to begin with Joel. And I hope some of you have taken the time to read it uh, ahead of time before coming today. If you haven't, no worries, but maybe make it your aim to do that um, before you come uh, next week. And uh, we'll, we'll post what the next one is so you'll know which one to read for two reasons. The first reason that it's good to do that is always true, not just in this summer series, but always. You'll get more out of it if you read it ahead of time. You get, if you read it ahead of time, you think about it yourself, pray over it, pour over it. Um, then, then you will have, the, the Lord will have already shown you things and, 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 and that, that you have as you come in here and listen to me teach. So you'll get more out of it. But secondly, especially this summer, um, for most of these minor prophets, we're not going to be able to read the whole book in one morning. So there's going to be some things that we have to skip over. But if you've read it yourself, you will not have skipped over anything. So there you go. But you'll see I've called this the gospel according to Joel. The gospel, because we, we based our introduction last week from um, something that Paul said at the opening of his letter to the Romans, where he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which, this gospel, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that when you turn to these prophets, you are seeing the gospel itself uh, promised beforehand, proclaimed ahead of time. In fact, I, I ended with the comma there, but verse 3 would say this, this gospel concerning his son. So that, that's, that's all in some form or fashion foreshadowed, promised, proclaimed ahead of time in these prophets. And Paul was not the first one to say something like that. I mean, you, you, see, you see this idea already in the gospels. So, for example... 
uh, when John the Baptist was born, in Luke chapter 1, when John the Baptist was born, his father Zechariah prophesied in the Holy Spirit, it says. He prophesied when, when John was born. And among the things that, that Zechariah said in Luke chapter 1, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, from of old. And that's what's in your Bible known as Zechariah's song. Look at that. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> he, so Zechariah knew uh, that Mary had already been promised by the, by the angel that that a son would be born to her, conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was the Savior promised to come. Uh, and, and that his own son, John the Baptist, would be the prophet to go ahead of him to announce his arrival and, uh, and his appearance. And Zechariah said all of this was already spoken ahead of time by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That's exactly what Paul said. Jesus himself, just to tie this into a nice little bow, Jesus himself said this. He said that it's at the end of Luke's gospel. Twice he said it, actually. Both times after his resurrection, once he's on the road to Emmaus, and he's walking with two men. And he tells them, he tells those two men in Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what you find, according to Jesus, in the prophets are things concerning Jesus. That's what he says. And then right after that, in the same chapter, in Luke 24, after he meets with these two men on the road, he appears to his disciples. And he tells them, right after he eats a piece of fish with them, um, so Jesus really bodily rose from the dead. It says in verse 44, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So all Scripture, all, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus, about what He came to do, and that specifically includes the prophets. Which is why one guiding principle that I want to just lay out here at the beginning, before we, at the, at the outset of this study, through the Minor Prophets, this study, one guiding principle that we need to have in mind when we come to the study of the prophets or anything in the Old Testament is this. How do they do that? How do, they, how do they point forward to Christ? Because it's easy to think that the prophets were just a long time ago and they were prophesying or talking about things that happened a long time ago and I can't understand them and they're not relevant to us today. But when we come to study the Bible, the guiding principle is this, is we don't need to come to it with our own assumptions, our own presuppositions about how it ought to be understood or what it's going to say. We need, the, we need to study it as the Bible itself tells us to study it. We need to study the Old Testament as the New Testament tells us to study it. Understand it as the New Testament tells us to understand it. The New Testament shows us how, how to read the Old Testament. And so with that, we come today to think about the prophet Joel. And I want us to think about it specifically from the vantage point, the gospel according to Joel. Not only who Joel was and when he was, when he wrote, where he wrote, what was going on at the time of his writing, but how specifically... Does his prophetic book foreshadow the gospel of Jesus Christ ahead of time and, and, and turn our attention to Jesus Christ? And I hope by the end of our time this morning, you, you'll understand that a little better and be able to see it for yourself in his book. 
Again, for time's sake, we can't read this whole book, even though it's just three chapters. So before we just dive into it, I want us to pray together and ask God's blessing. Father, um, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together to study your word. This is your word. We haven't read it yet publicly. Hopefully some of us have read it in private. But nevertheless, all the things that we're going to read today and see in Joel, this is your holy inspired inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. And, um, and, and it, it, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to see what it's telling us to see, and urging us to see. So give us eyes to see the truth in these pages. Give us minds to understand what, what you're saying through Joel. Give us hearts to embrace and love whatever uh, the gospel truth is that we see here. Help us to do whatever it leads us to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just to give you a little bit of background to Joel, in all honesty, there is not a ton that we know about him. Um, I have him first out of the chute just because I, I believe that he was one of the earlier writing, but I, I, even then, um, we can't know that for sure. It's believed that he prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah. So if you were here last week, just remember some of the history. It is important. This history is important because it will be necessary to know in order to understand some of these prophets. Um, after the reigns of David and Solomon, the, the nation of Israel split in two between north and south. Uh, not evenly, the northern ten tribes, there were twelve, the northern ten stayed together and they kept the name Israel. The southern two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, Judah was the larger of those two, so they kept the name Judah, right? And, um, and, and we believe that Joel was writing in that southern kingdom. Uh, and we get that because as you, if you've read the book, you'll know there, it, he just seems to have a, a concern for the welfare of Judah and Jerusalem in particular. But that's about the only thing that's clear about Joel, um, about the context, about the date of when he wrote. I've put him first because uh, historically it is traditionally believed he was an early writer, but it's not all that clear. If you, if you read biblical scholars as to uh, when Joel was written, they're all over the place. Um, some say that Joel prophesied very early in Judah, before, before Judah was exiled to Babylon, maybe after Israel had already been uh, exiled by Assyria, but early on. And would put him as one of the early writing prophets. But then other scholars say that Joel prophesied much later than that. Not early, but, but not, not, not during the exile to Babylon, but even after the exile to Babylon when they had returned to rebuild Jerusalem and, and, and everything. Um, but the problem is, as soon as you think you have a good reason to date it early, you find another reason for dating it late. And as soon as you think it's a late one, you come across another reason to think it's early. The good news is, and especially with Joel in particular, it really doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't really have any bearing on how we understand his book because a lot of the message of his book is not entirely dependent, or even to understand him is not dependent on understanding the local historical context in its, in its full entirety. I mean, there's some of that, but his overall message isn't dependent on it. And uh, John Calvin even said 500 years ago, uh, he said, but as there is no certainty, it is better to leave the time in which he taught undecided. And as we shall see, this is of no great importance. Not to know the time of Hosea 
would be to readers a great loss. For there are many parts which could not be explained without a knowledge of history. But as to Joel, there is, as I've said, less need of this, for the import of his doctrine is evident, though his time be obscure and uncertain. So when he wrote, not sure exactly. Where he wrote, Judah, southern kingdom. What did he actually say and how did he promise the gospel beforehand? Let's get to it and let's see how he did that. And here's how I'd like to, uh, uh, to think about Joel this morning. First, I want us to see in his message describe the curse of sin. We'll see this throughout the book. That'll be the case with each of the prophets. Their, their messages are not always very linear. They, they sometimes come back and forth between judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, just like that. We'll see the curse of sin throughout the book in different ways. And then second, to see his description of the coming judgment. It's a fascinating aspect of Joel, but also in some uh, of the other prophets as well, how they interpreted the events of their day and, re and related it to the coming greater judgment of God against uh, the world. So the ju coming judgment. And finally, like practically all the prophets, the strong words of judgment are always mingled with the comfort of salvation. Joel pr predicts the coming of salvation in quite an important way that the New Testament picks up on. So let's think first about the curse of sin. If you actually read Joel ahead of time, if you read through these three chapters, two things are very ironically, uh, they are ironically very apparent. Uh, one is Joel's message that the people, the people of, of Judah were receiving uh, the heavy hand of God for their sin and rebellion against God. That's one thing that's very apparent. The people of Judah that he's writing to, they are receiving the very heavy hand of God as judgment for the sin and rebellion that they're involved in. But the, the ironic thing is, the second thing that's very apparent is he's not very specific on what that sin looked like. Like, what precisely was their sin? What precisely did their rebellion look like? What form did it take? Really, the only somewhat specific word is in this first chapter, in verse 5, where he says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. So are we to take from that, that they were being judged for being a nation of drunkards? I don't know. But beyond that, there's hardly a specific word as to, as to precisely what their, 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 their sin, sin was. Whatever it was, it's in the background. And uh, you see that in two ways. You see, you see that, that there's this, uh, this language that he uses when he's describing what has happened to them. You can tell that the way he's describing it, they're, they're, it's not just a random event that's happening. It's the very curse against their sin. Let's see that in the first two weeks. He talks about in the opening verses of, of, the, of the book uh, that, that there's a, an invasion of locusts. So look at verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So this is about to be a big deal. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So there's this invasion of locusts that was happening in Judah. Is it a random thing? Was it just a random agricultural disaster that was happening is that how joel sees this thing is it random locusts eating everything what does joel make of this 
This is the first way that we see Joel describing this event as the curse of their sin and rebellion. Whatever precisely that rebellion was, how precisely they were rebelling, we don't know, but whatever it was, they're experiencing his judgment. He, and we know that these locusts are the judgment of God because of the, the language that he uses to describe it. He describes it more than just a really unfortunate event, but as the consequence of their covenant-breaking disobedience, whatever it was. To see what I mean, look at verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1. All right? The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. Uh, the vine dries up. The fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now, you read that, and it still might just seem, well, that's just the result of this unfortunate event. Are we to read that there's some theological significance behind these locusts and what, what all they've eaten? Well, just reading those two verses, those three verses, uh, you, if, you, if you're familiar with the rest of the Old Testament, you see um, that this is something that the prophets, how the prophets regularly describe the judgment of God. That, that, and let me just give you an example. The, the beautiful ending of Habakkuk that we're going to study later in the summer, the ending of, of Habakkuk, here's how he ends the, the letter, the book, and it's, it's describing the judgment of God. And he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. There's no talk in, in, uh, in Habakkuk of a locust invasion, but this, this lack of fruit on the vine, this lack of food, the wine drying up, all of the... the, the, the Blessing of God be taken away in these agricultural terms. It's always indicative of the judgment of God. The fact that it is caused by a locust invasion here in Joel, it, it doesn't take away from that significance. Why did the prophets interpret it that way? Why did they, why did they interpret this, this agricultural devastation as the hand of the judgment of God? Because that's exactly what God said would happen in the law. That's exactly how God told them to interpret it. In Deuteronomy 28, he descri God describes what he would do if they obeyed and what he would do if they disobeyed. And here's how he describes what he would do if they obeyed his law in Deuteronomy 28. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord your, uh, swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens to give you rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. So what's the, what is the sign of his, his blessing for their obedience? Not just many children, but agricultural blessing, flourishing, rain and produce, right? What happens if they disobey? It says in verse 21 of that same chapter, 20, Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you're entering to take possession of it. And then later in the chapter, verses 38 through 40, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little. For the locust, interesting, shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but 
you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall have eaten them. And you shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. So whatever the specifics were in, in, in Joel that are in the background of why God was bringing this judgment on them, whatever their sins were, it is His judgment for their sins nonetheless. He interprets this locust invasion as the curse of God against their sin. And the first way we know that it's that is that language He uses to describe it. Of the wheat and the barley and, uh, perishing and the vine drying up and the figs languishing. But the second way, that's just the language of God's curse against sin, but the second way you know it, that it's His judgment against them for their sin, it's because the response He urges to this is repentance. Right? Just in chapter 2, for example, look, uh, look in uh, verses 12 through 17. Uh, we, it won't be on the screen. Well, first of all, look back in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, he says, Consecrate a fast and call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So it, he's calling for a fast and calling for repentance. Now look over in chapter 2. Just look in your own Bible, it won't be on the screen. Verses 12 through 17. Yet even now, declares the Lord, God is saying this, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. In other words, don't just pretend to repent. Come to me in genuine repentance. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and not? He will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, "Spare your people, O Lord." And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? So we don't know exactly what their sin was. And because the, the historical time stamp on Joel is so ambiguous, it's hard to, hard to back into it historically and say this is what was going on. But it's clearly... Uh, their sin and rebellience and disobedience, rebellion and their disobedience that's, that's in the background and God is judging them for it and they were being called to repentance. And this is, this is one way that Joel is preaching the gospel beforehand uh, in, in his prophecy like Paul said he did. He, like all the other prophets, holds up a clear picture of God's holiness and he holds up a picture of, of his sovereign lordship over his people and our sinfulness against him. That's one thing that's very clear in the opening words of Joel. And, and God is bringing the consequences of it on them, and He brings the consequences of our sin on us. In other words, He holds up God's holiness, our sinfulness, our need of a Savior. He does that. And we'll see when we come to the next truth that we don't need to, and He doesn't urge them to repent of their sins just so the crops will start growing again. Right? But because, not only that, but there's a greater judgment that, that is coming if they don't repent. So let's think about the coming judgment. If you've already read Joel, you may have already seen this, but there's an escalation of judgments in the book. It's kind of fascinating. In other words, 
Joel not only understood what was happening in his own day with this locust uh, invasion, and it, this is the judgment of God on us because of our sin, this isn't the only thing he talks about. He, he, he takes that and says this is foreshadowing even something greater that's coming, actually in two, two greater stages, and not greater in a good way. For example, while jo Joel does see this locust invasion as the consequence for their sin, he also sees it as prelude to something worse. Specifically, this is prelude to a, another nation that's going to come and invade us. Look in chapter 1 again, verse 6. Right after he talks about the, the locusts, he says in verse 6, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. And he describes... So just like, these, just like these locusts have come through as the judgment of God, if we don't repent, God is going to send something greater, an invading army, an invading nation. And, he, and in chapter 2, he describes that, that uh, in greater length. So look in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Here's, he's, he's describing this, this invading uh, nation. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge. Like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on its way. You, you, you get the sense that he's still describing this invading army and in, in imagery of what the locusts have just done. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They, uh, they leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Hmm. So the Lord has shown Joel, his prophet, that if the people didn't repent, a greater consequence was coming. The devastation that the locusts left behind in the crops would be nothing compared to the approaching army from the north. One question might come up then, though, as we try to, as we try to understand uh, our own current day, as Joel understood his, how are we to see, are we, try, are we to interpret every war are we in to interpret every disaster in the world and try to see what specific sin is behind it and what caused it? No, that's not what Joel did. Joel here doesn't even tell us what their specific sins were, and maybe that's instructive for us, right? Maybe it's just like Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh exactly was, and maybe that's a good thing. We don't need, in other words, we don't need to look at tragedies in the world and try to prophesy what's the reason behind it. But I will tell you that what we can do with it is exactly what Joel does with it. He sees this coming judgment as a foreshadowing of something even greater, something that would affect the whole world and would be cosmic and universal in its scope and final in its outcome, then he calls it the day of the Lord. So he sees, instead of seeing a tragedy in the world, he doesn't try to get behind it. He lets it remind him of something greater that's coming. And this is a huge theme in Joel, the day of the Lord. We'll see it in a lot of the prophets. He starts mentioning this, this uh, day of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. 
and as destruction from the Almighty comes. But is this day of the Lord just this army that's coming? How do we know this day of the Lord that's coming isn't just the locusts or is, is something greater than this other army that might invade them? Well, we know it's something even beyond that because of how it is described, how this day of the Lord is described later in the letter. Look at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For the day of the Lord is coming. That's the middle of verse 1. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. But the description gets even worse later in the chapter. Look at verses 10 and 11. Middle of, middle of 10. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. Who, he who executes His word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? How do we know it's something more than just this invading army? Did you notice the cosmic language in there? Sun, moon, stars, darkened, withdrawing their shining. No human army can do that. This is a, this is a, a, a cosmic uh, day coming. That, that this locust invasion and this invading army are just faint pictures of a greater day coming that's going to be worse than anything we've seen heretofore. And he says again in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, near the end of the book, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The, the day of the Lord is, is near and it is, it is described as the end of all things. When God judges the nations, and he says... He mentions this valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Whose decision? Is it, is it a valley of decision where we have an opportunity on this day to decide to repent? No. This is the valley of God's decision. This is, this is the time where we hear God's decision of judgment on the nations. This valley of, the deci of decision means court is now in session. And God will judge the world, which is why Joel said earlier of that day in chapter 2, who can endure it? We get back to an earlier point. So Joel, Joel sees, so sees the first tragedy, the locusts. And we know that, that the people's sin and rebellion is behind it, but we're not told specifically what that sin is. All you're presented with is there are consequences to our rebellion. Locusts, in this case. Repent. If you don't repent, greater consequence coming. It's an invading army. If you don't repent, there's a cosmic day coming, a final judgment coming. And, and, and why does Joel move from locust to invading army to cosmic scale judgment of God of all the nations? What is Joel saying? He is saying that every war and every rumor of war in this world should not cause us self-righteously to point our fingers at other people and say their sin is the cause of it. Every war and every rumor of war in this world and every tragedy in this world should cause us to look at ourselves and repent of our own selves for, for breaking this world for our own sin. There's a greater day coming. Every war and every rumor of war, God is giving us another 
reminder that a day is coming and it's calling us to repent. And if they did come to the Lord in repentance, Joel says, God promises his forgiveness and his salvation. The latter half of Joel's prophecy is, uh, is Joel talking about this salvation that he would bring if the people repented. In the second half of the letter, oh, excuse me, in the second half of chapter 2, he promises to reverse all these curses if they repented. First, he promises them uh, in that day to rescue them from their enemies. So look at verse 20 in chapter 2. He says, I will remove the northerner, that's that, that invading army. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. So he, 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 he promises to rescue them from their enemies if they repent. He promises to restore their prosperity. Look at verse 19. The Lord answered, this is chapter 2, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach to the nations. Just, just as the, the curse of God was described as an absence of all these agricultural blessings, he's now promising to restore them. I'm sending you grain, wine, oil, no more make you a reproach. And by the time you get to the end of Joel, you realize that when he talks about restoring their prosperity in this way, I'm going to send you grain and wine and oil, he's not just talking about um, physical blessings to earthly Israel. He's talking about something that relates to uh, the blessing that all who come to repentance and faith in Christ will receive. Because notice the exaggerated language of these blessings at the end of the, the book in chapter 3, verse 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. They shall drip with wine. And the, the hill shall flow with milk. Literally. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and from the valley, water from the valley of Shittim. Do you think he literally means there will be wine-dripping mountains? You know? Or, or uh, what does he say? Hills flowing with milk? I don't know if he means that literally. I don't think he is. I think what he's doing is, describe, is describing in wildly exaggerated terms, on purpose, the blessing, the, the unimaginable blessing that all the redeemed will receive and that they will know and that they will experience for all eternity in the presence of the Lord, which is the last element of the salvation described here in Joel's prophecy. That the salvation isn't just described in terms of his deliverance of his people from their enemies and restoring their property. Hey, your, your figs will grow again. No, that's all pointing forward to something greater. But the ultimate promise of his salvation is his presence with his people. This is the most significant part of the prophecy, actually at the end of chapter 2. This is the most significant part if we let the New Testament tell us how to read our Bible. Look at verses 28 and 29 in chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 
Does anybody know where that, those two verses are quoted in the New Testament? Don't look at your reference verses. Uh-uh. Huh? Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Right? Uh, Acts chapter 2, when, the, when, the, Holy, when Je- the, ascended, the resurrected Jesus had ascended back to heaven and he said, wait a few days and the Holy, I will pour out my Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the believers and they start speaking in tongues and everybody in Jerusalem in there for the Feast of Pentecost says, what in the world's going on? We hear these people speaking in our own languages. What's going on? Peter stands up and he starts to preach and he says, what? we're not drunk. What you're seeing is the fulfillment of this verse. And he quotes it. This, that was the fulfillment of what Joel said right here. Joel prophesied here that this salvation, would, when it came, one day the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, meaning both Jews and Gentiles. And as we learn in Acts, all those who come to faith in Jesus Christ without distinction. And the Holy Spirit here is the abiding presence of Christ Himself in every believer. And there's two, two other things that I want to mention here that I want to end up with as we wrap up this this uh, quick look through Joel. First, look as we're looking at this this same section of the of the book. Look at the promise right after he says, "I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh." Look at the promise that comes just after that in verse thirty-two. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where do we see that in the New Testament? Romans ten thirteen, right. That's what Paul says. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'd be willing to bet that most people never have thought about the last part of this verse or even knew that it came from Joel, for that matter. But Joel continues. Right after he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he says, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So in this one verse you have people calling on the name of the Lord and the Lord calling on them. See that? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and it ends with those whom the Lord calls. What that means is, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is being called by the Lord Himself. You see that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is being called by the Lord Himself. That is assurance. Right? When we call on Christ, we can know He is first calling us. The second thing is this. I want to point out. Right after, when He says in verse 28 and 29, Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters prophesy, old men dream dreams, da 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 The very next words, verses 30 and 31, in that same breath as the Spirit being poured out, He says in verses 30 and 31, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord come. That's when he says, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that's crazy. And what's more, Peter quotes that part too in in Acts 2 at Pentecost. In the same, on the same day that the Spirit is poured out, and when Peter stands up to say, this fulfills what Joel said, it doesn't just fulfill his promise in 28 and 29 that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He says 30 and 31 are fulfilled that day too. What? 
how? None of that actually happened on the day of Pentecost. I don't remember reading in Acts 2 about the moon turning to blood or anything of that sort. What, what, what's, what's going on? What I think it shows in, in, in brief, and I have to skip over a lot of explanation, is that it shows us how it is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It shows us that the one who will judge the nations in the end on that dreadful day will be Christ himself. And so to call on the name of the Lord is to call on Christ. And for all who call on Christ, that future day of judgment coming, described in these cataclysmic terms, moon to blood, columns of fire and smoke, it will be a sight to behold, but nothing to fear. Right? Joel, in these three chapters, shows us our guilt before God and through the, the coming judgment in these multiple ways shows us our need of a Savior. But in the end, he points us to Christ, who is that Savior. And that is the gospel according to Joel. Let's pray.